Due to the graphic nature of this dictator's story, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of torture and murder. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. On October 18, 1016, the armies of Viking conqueror Knut the Great and English commander Edmund Ironside fought to decide the fate of England. Knut stood at the forefront of his men, bracing himself among their shields. He knew Viking warlords were expected to lead by example. He had fought many battles before. He was used to bloodshed and the cries of dying men. But today, Knut knew he could likely face his death. Being a Christian, he didn't have the reassurance that dying in battle would ensure him a place in Valhalla, the hall of slain warriors. He prayed that the Christian God was on his side that day. Even if he wasn't, Knut knew his men were with him to the death. Bolstered by their support, he felt brave enough to try an attack against the English. At his command, Knut's warriors shouted and banged their shields with their spears. The Vikings surged forward. Moments later, the Viking shield wall slammed into the English line, but Edmund's men stood their ground. With another shout, Knut pushed forward, ready to gamble his life for a chance at glory and the throne of England. Welcome to Dictators, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Kate. And I'm Richard. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This season on Dictators, we're looking at the violent reign of the Vikings. Today, we're exploring the life of Canute the Great, one of the Vikings' most successful leaders. In the early 11th century, Canute forged an empire that included Denmark, England, Norway, and parts of Sweden. It was broader than any previous Viking kingdom. But he was also one of the last Nordic warlords, and his success actually hastened the decline of the Viking Age. This week, we'll examine Canute's early career as a warrior, his invasion of England, and his epic duel with English Prince Edmund Ironside. Next week, we'll look at how Knut won the thrones of Denmark and Norway, built the vast North Sea Empire, and became one of the most powerful kings in Scandinavian history. We'll have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. While his later exploits are legendary, we know almost nothing about Knut's childhood. Not even the date of his birth can be pinned down. We only know he was born sometime between 990 and 1000 CE. His father was Svein Forkbeard, the king of Denmark, and his mother was part of the royal family of Poland. Unlike many previous Viking leaders, they were Christians, and Knut was baptized as an infant. Knut's grandfather had converted to Christianity around 963, bringing about Denmark's transition from paganism. Nevertheless, there were only a handful of churches in the country at the time of Knut's birth. 
Just as Christianity was still relatively new to the country, so was the dynasty of Canute's family. His grandfather was a king from northern Jutland, who spent multiple decades expanding his influence over neighboring kingdoms. Eventually, he united Denmark and conquered Norway, but in 987, his son Svein overthrew him. Knut's grandfather died from wounds sustained during the rebellion and never knew his grandson. But his death had a lasting effect on Knut. According to historian Timothy Bolton, much of this instability must have informed Knut's character and later decisions. From birth, Knut had learned to strive and fight for his achievements, even when that led to morally shocking decisions and dark, murderous actions to further his aims. Svein's murder of his own father was scandalous, and the stigma of it plagued Knut's family for years afterward. With his family's prestige blackened, Knut must have learned early on that they had to rely on violence to maintain power. But Knut was not expected to wield much of that power. He was Svein's second son, and it was assumed he'd be overshadowed by his brother Harald. If Knut wished to rule a land of his own, he would have to look elsewhere, like across the North Sea to the British Isles. Scandinavian raiders had terrorized the British Isles since 793, when the monastery of Lindisfarne was sacked by the Vikings. However, the end of the 10th century brought a particularly violent period of raids. It peaked in 1009 and 1010, when a large Viking army pillaged and burned Canterbury, Cambridge, and Northampton. The raid on Canterbury wasn't a quick smash-and-grab operation. Entire communities were sacked, and no one was safe. One story claims that after the Archbishop of Canterbury was taken prisoner, a drunken mob of Vikings pelted him with the bones and heads of cattle until he died. This invasion was led by a Viking warlord named Thorkel the Tall. Thorkel became the leader of the Yom's Vikings. These were Nordic mercenaries who lived like a brotherhood under a strict code of discipline. The English king, Athelred, was incapable of defeating Thorkel's army. Instead, the king bribed the majority of them to leave while hiring the remainder as mercenaries. Thorkel's success demonstrated that England was ripe for the plucking. Likely encouraged by this weakness, King Svein of Denmark prepared his own invasion in 1013. However, it may not have been the English spoils that King Svein wanted. To him, Thorkel's success was also a threat. Years of looting and bribery had made Thorkel wealthy and powerful. It's possible Svein wanted to counter Thorkel's show of force with his own. Meanwhile, Svein's son, Knut, had his own reasons for advocating an invasion of England. It was an opportunity to make a name for himself and step out from his brother's shadow. And Svein was probably eager to have his young son join him. He could teach his son the responsibilities of leadership and enhance the family's prestige through victory in battle. However, while previous Viking raiders had only sought to plunder the British Isles, Svein's goal was to conquer them. 
According to Bolton, he sought to seize control at the level of central and local government and permanently rule the country, rather than just raise wealth through pillage and ransoms. Further, Svein's decision to conquer may have been motivated by the need to maintain his rule in Denmark. In ages past, a successful raid on England brought great wealth and prestige, even to a minor leader. By conquering England, Svein could cut off this potential revenue stream to any challengers for his throne. He could also better control raiding expeditions to ensure they wouldn't be used to undermine his authority. And while Svein's Christianity didn't motivate his impending conquest, it certainly made the goal more realistic. The English would accept a Christian overlord far more easily than a pagan one. So King Svein and his son Knut set sail for England and their future. In 1013, they landed at Sandwich in southeast England, the same place the Romans launched their invasion of Britain nearly a thousand years earlier. Svein and Knut sailed north along the coast and up the river Trent to the town of Gainsborough. There, Svein accepted the surrender of several English lords who thought it was wiser to bend the knee and live than to resist and die. Bolstered by these new English allies, Svein and Canute proceeded to conquer Oxford and Winchester. An attack on London failed, but the Viking army received the surrender of other nearby lords. With his power base collapsing, English King Athelred fled to Normandy in modern-day France shortly after Christmas. The British throne was empty, and Svein was now master of England. However, for much of the country, particularly in the north, his authority was more theoretical than real. In order to rectify that, Svein planned to have himself crowned at the northern stronghold of York, there, he would also receive the submission of the regional lords and consolidate his hold over the country. As part of this process of consolidation, Knut married an English noblewoman named Elfgifu. Whether the marriage was Knut or Svein's idea is unknown, but they both benefited from the union. Elfgifu belonged to a powerful Mercian family. Mercia was one of the oldest Anglo-Saxon kingdoms, centered around the English Midlands. Her family had fallen on hard times. Elfgifu's father had been assassinated as a result of court politics, and one of her brothers had been murdered. Yet the family remained powerful and well-connected. Knut was likely ecstatic to take her as a bride in his bid for eventual power. He was firmly committed to Svein's plan of ruling England and looked forward to his status rising alongside his father's in the coming years. But before Canute even had a chance to settle into his position as a prince, his father died suddenly. Virtually overnight, Canute found himself alone, stranded in a foreign and increasingly hostile land. He knew he would be forced to fight, not just for the crown, but for his life. Coming up, Canute scrambles to hold on to the crown of England. Hi, I'm Christine Schiefer. 
And I'm M. Schultz. We're the hosts of Rituals, the new Spotify original from Parcast. If you've heard our podcast and that's why we drink, you know we are no strangers to true crime and the paranormal. We're also into the occult uh, to chat about, not to join, but, you know, to, to learn and educate. <laughs> Every Monday on Rituals, we're journeying through mystifying stories of sorcery, alchemy, Satanism, and more, and trying to determine if the dark arts of the past impact us today. Like weather witches? Who were they? Or the Fountain of Youth? Address, please. <laughs> Don't forget about werewolf trials, Em. Objection, Christine. Let's not give too much away. And instead, let's tell everyone to follow our new podcast, Rituals, free and only on Spotify. Now back to the story. In 1013, the young Viking leader Knut joined his father, King Svein Forkbeard of Denmark, in an invasion of England. Within weeks, English King Athelred fled into exile, and Svein and Canute seized the throne. But on February 3rd, 1014, less than a year after the invasion, Svein suddenly dropped dead. The cause of death is not known, though one story claims he fell off his horse, while another suggests he was killed by a ghost. Along with the cause, we can't be certain how Canute felt about the death of his father. He must have been shocked at the suddenness of it, and probably concerned that his own position in England was now in jeopardy. But he may have also sensed that even in this time of tragedy, there was opportunity. Svein had summoned the Northern English lords to pay him homage, essentially declaring their allegiance. But since Svein died while the lords were en route, they instead had to make a momentous decision. Should they pledge loyalty to Canute or recall King Athelred? According to historian Ryan Lavelle, Knut must have hoped to build on the support that his marriage to Elfgefew gave him from the Midland nobility. But the English nobility decided that they were better off with the old king, rather than relying on the son of a Danish usurper with no other links to the English throne. The English lords negotiated with Athelred in Normandy, who promised to be virtuous and lower taxes. In return, the lords welcomed him back as their true king. Nevertheless, Knut remained in England for two months after Athelred's return. This suggests he still hoped to gather enough support to challenge the king. However, he was ambushed while building an army near Gainsborough, and Canute was forced to flee England. Canute sailed back to Denmark in such haste that he left his father's body behind. However, he did take English hostages with him. After his departure, he tortured them mercilessly and cut off their hands, ears, and noses. This violence was likely no consolation for the loss of his father and budding empire in England. And Canute wouldn't have been too happy to be home either. His brother Harold ruled Denmark, and challenging him for power was too risky. Instead, Canute was eager to return to England as soon as possible and win back the land his father had taken. Thus, Canute set out to forge a new Viking army, but it wasn't easy. According to Timothy Bolton, 
Knut had to build a large network of personal supporters from the most important elites of the kingdom, balancing their egos, wants, and various pre-existing rivalries and alliances to place himself at the center of this network. Of these alliances, two were paramount. One was with the Norwegian warlord Eiriker Hakonarsen. The middle-aged Eiriker was an experienced mentor to young Knut and also married to his half-sister. The other crucial alliance was none other than Thorkel the Tall, whose threatening power inspired Svein to invade England in the first place. Rather than challenge Harald directly, Thorkel offered his services to Knut. Thanks to these warlords' networks, Knut was able to raise an impressive new army. Though its actual size is unknown, it was about as large as any Viking army ever got, at least a few thousand warriors. All Knut had to do now was wait for an opportune moment to strike. That came in 1015, when English King Athelred had a falling out with his own son, Edmund. The quarrel began when Athelred had a pair of northern lords killed, probably for allying with Svein. However, Edmund had important contacts in the north and thus supported the families of the murdered men in defiance of his father. When Athelred imprisoned one of the victim's widows, Edmund not only sprung her free, he married her. The king was furious. On the other hand, Canute was delighted. With Athelred and Edmund divided, the country was vulnerable to attack. In the summer of 1015, Canute launched his own invasion of England. Canute's invasion fleet reached Sandwich, then sailed up the river Froom to attack southwest England. At the same time, King Athelred fell gravely ill and left it to his estranged son to fight the Vikings. But Edmund struggled to rally the English to his cause. When Canute entered Warwickshire in January 1016, Edmund tried to raise the local militia, and they refused to budge. King Athelred even went in person to Mercia to inspire the troops, but the rumor of an impending assassination turned him back. Frustrated, Edmund traveled to the north to gain the support of the lords there. He was able to rally some support, but many were still reluctant to take on the vicious Vikings. Furious with this outcome, Edmund ended up attacking his own people because of their stubborn refusal to fight. Meanwhile, Knut raided up and down England's eastern coastline, plundering Bedfordshire and Nottinghamshire, among others. He then turned north, swiftly capturing Northumbria, where he installed his mentor, Eiriker, as governor. Canute's strength only grew as he tore through the English countryside. One of the most important northern lords, named Uhtred, even tried to join Canute in the hopes of saving his lands. It didn't work. Uhtred paid homage to Canute and gave him hostages, but Canute had already rewarded Eiriker with the lands in question. So Uhtred was put to death. Edmund, continually thwarted in his attempts to rally resistance, retreated to London alongside his cowardly father. Canute gave chase and marched south, expecting a confrontation, 
until King Athelred died on April 23, 1016. Accounts vary on what happened next. Some say the London garrison promptly declared Edmund the new king, but others report that London's bishops, aldermen, and other nobles gathered together and elected Knut as king. Not giving up hope, Edmund marched west to Wessex and gathered more troops there. Canute turned west to follow, and their armies clashed at the town of Pencilwood. The battle proved indecisive because the two armies clashed again shortly after at Sherston. According to Timothy Bolton, Sherston seems to have been the crucial tipping point of the campaign, where we can first see the turning of events in Canute's favor. One source written several hundred years after the event reports that Edmund, quote, charged straight into the heart of the Danish army to within striking distance of King Knut. After that, the Danes attacked Edmund so fiercely he had to retreat to his own ranks. The Vikings emerged victorious thanks to English defectors. It's uncertain whether these traders reached out to join Knut or he seduced them with promises of wealth and power but they believed their futures would be brighter under the foreign invader, and so betrayed their own king. Thus, Sherston was a tremendously significant victory for Canute. Afterward, he turned back to London. The city was not yet the capital of England, but it was the kingdom's largest city, and so taking it was crucial to winning the country. While Knut laid siege to London yet again, Edmund raised another army in Wessex. With these new troops, he managed to break the siege and save the city. Denied the prize of London, Knut traveled east to raid Kent. Edmund followed him, and several of the English turncoats returned to him. Knut's fate balanced on a razor's edge. English lords proved to be fickle allies, and his Vikings needed victory and plunder if they were to continue to back him. If Canute didn't finish off Edmund soon, his dream of conquering England might be dashed forever. So Canute gambled on one final attack against Edmund directly. The outcome would determine who would be king of England and who would be executed. Coming up, Canute faces a climactic showdown with Edmund. Now back to the story. In summer 1015, Viking warlord Canute led an invasion of England to reclaim the land his father had won. He was opposed by Edmund Ironside, son of the late King Athelred. After months of sieges, raiding, and battles, Canute was ready to deliver the knockout blow. On October 18, 1016, at a small village in Essex, two armies met for what would likely be their final confrontation. Few details of this combat survive. However, it must have been a costly battle because medieval sources suggest that, quote, all the nobility of England was destroyed there and the Vikings emerged victorious. Edmund himself survived, but his army was routed and his hopes dashed. 
he grimly accepted that he had to make peace with the Viking warlord. At Deerhurst in Gloucestershire, Knut and Edmund met to negotiate the surrender. Their respective armies stood on the opposite banks of the River Severn. Knut and Edmund rowed out on fishing boats and met each other on a small island. It is difficult to reconstruct the details of what transpired at the meeting of these two great rivals. One medieval chronicler suggested that they actually dueled each other, which seems far-fetched. There does, however, seem to be an indication that the two had grown to respect each other. According to Ryan Lavelle, there had, after all, been a hard summer of campaigning, and in such circumstances, despite or perhaps because of the bloodshed, it was not impossible for the mutual respect of fellow warriors to develop into genuine affection. In any case, Canute and Edmund agreed to divide England between them. Edmund held on to Wessex, Canute received the region of Mercia, while his mentor Iriker was confirmed as Lord of the North. However, this arrangement did not last long. Just a few months later, on November 30th, 1016, Edmund died. Some Anglo-Norman historians claim he was murdered, either stabbed or shot by a crossbow while on the toilet. Another source even suggested God killed him to avoid the division of England. A more likely suggestion offered by Timothy Bolton is that Edmund succumbed to infection from wounds received during the war against Canute. There is no hard evidence to suggest the Viking leader was behind Edmund's demise, but Canute did profit the most from it. After Edmund's death, Canute called a council of the lords and was proclaimed the king of the whole of England. Knut's legitimacy as king rested solely on the right of conquest, which was precarious at best. He was a foreign invader who now ruled a people with languages and customs that were different from his own. Not only that, but even the English population was not a totally united people. The divided legacies of the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms, Mercia, East Anglia, and Wessex, among others, still lingered. Knut's English subjects would have expected their new king to act as a good Christian monarch, bringing peace and stability after years of war, and to finally put a halt to the raids from Scandinavia. His Viking warriors, on the other hand, would have expected to be rewarded for their service with wealth seized from the English. If they were not placated, there was little to stop them from violently turning against the new king. It was a dangerous balancing act. Even one misstep could mean Knut's death. So first, he called a meeting of powerful English lords and pacified them by enacting laws which confirmed their status at the apex of society. The defectors who'd come over to Knut's side during the war with Edmund were rewarded with offices, lands, and titles. In return, the English lords swore oaths recognizing Canute as their true and rightful king. With the English leaders calmed, Canute turned to the Vikings who had helped him win his crown. He divided the kingdom into four regions. He kept Wessex, while Thorkel got East Anglia, 
Eiricher had Northumbria, and Mercia went to English defector Edric the Grasper. While the arrangement may have helped Canute stabilize the kingdom, it wasn't to his full satisfaction. Around Christmas 1017, Edric the Grasper was summoned to the king's court in London. Whatever ruse Knut used to lure Edric to London worked, because once he arrived, the unsuspecting Edric was seized and executed. What prompted Knut to execute Edric isn't clear. Perhaps it was motivated by Edric's uncertain loyalty. Perhaps Knut didn't trust him because he wasn't Scandinavian. After all, Knut immediately promoted another Scandinavian, Eiriker's son, Hakon, to Edric's place. Or perhaps the new king merely felt that Edric had too much power. Most likely, all these considerations played a role in Knut's decision to kill the English noble. Edric wasn't the only Englishman Knut was eager to dispose of. There was still the matter of Edmund's brother and two sons. The brother was killed on Canute's orders, while the sons were sent into exile in Hungary. A broader purge followed, with various English nobles executed for one reason or another. Undoubtedly, Knut viewed the bloodshed as necessary to strengthen his hold on power. But he also pursued less violent ways of bolstering his rule. Though Canute was still legally married to Elfgifu, in July 1017, he ordered another woman brought before him. This was Emma, daughter of the Duke of Normandy and King Athelred's widow. The fact that Canute was already married didn't stop him from marrying Emma in a Christian ceremony. Though Normandy was in France, it was ruled by the Viking descendants of Rollo, a Scandinavian warlord. The name of the region itself, Normandy, derives from Normans, which is Norse for Northmen, as a past French king had given the territory to the Vikings in order to placate them. Thus, Emma was thoroughly Scandinavian. Timothy Bolton suggests it may have been Emma who shrewdly insisted on a Christian marriage to solidify their union. Furthermore, Bolton notes that Emma seems to have been a formidable political figure in her own right, and was especially well-positioned to exploit the situation to its full. Thanks to Emma, Canute's reign became more palatable in the eyes of the English, who could view it as a continuation of Athelred's. Meanwhile, the alliance with Normandy would have done much to dissuade any attempts to overthrow Canute in favor of Athelred's surviving children who were living in exile. After the marriage, political purges, and rewarding of loyal followers, Knut's hold on power in England was secure by 1018. This is evidenced by Knut's demand for a tribute of 72,000 pounds sterling from his English subjects. The city of London was also placed under permanent military occupation and held to an even greater amount of tribute. This tax would have primarily gone to paying off Canute's supporters, the return he owed them for bringing him to power. Such a tribute was nothing new. For decades, the English had paid the Vikings taxes in order to be left alone. It was a tough pill for Canute's English subjects to swallow, but with his Vikings paid off, they would leave England and cease their raiding. 
Knut wisely balanced exploitation and reconciliation. Having satisfied his Scandinavian warriors and his English nobles, he then turned to the church. The king must have reached some accommodation with the influential Archbishop of York named Wolfston, but it's not clear how Knut did it. A few years earlier, in 1014, Wolfston had railed against the Vikings and asserted that they had been sent by God to punish the English. But by 1018, Wolfston was helping Canute draft his law codes and urging the English to love King Canute with due loyalty. However he did it, Canute won the archbishop over. Likely, Wolfston was motivated by simple pragmatism. His diocese contained a great many Scandinavian immigrants, and he wanted to keep their support. More importantly, Canute was now the most powerful man in England, and the archbishop would have wanted to be on his good side. Other clergy were less trustworthy. The loyalty of the bishops of London was deemed especially suspect, so Knut seized lands from them and levied extra taxes. Then, in 1023, to further undermine hostile bishops, Knut went so far as to steal the body of St. Alphage from St. Paul's in London. The king's personal bodyguards pretended to attack London's gates in order to create a diversion. Knut himself, joined by the Archbishop of Canterbury and some accomplices, snuck into St. Paul's and pried open the saint's tomb. They took the body to a waiting longship which Knut sailed to safety. Considering that relics would have been important moneymakers for the church at this time, a saint's corpse was quite the score. If the story is true, it suggests that Knut's power was never absolute. Even with all that he had accomplished, Knut was never above being challenged for the throne. And the most dangerous challenge of Knut's life was about to emerge, not from within England, but from his homeland. The other Nordic kings, fearing that the young warlord aimed to become master of all Scandinavia, were on the brink of an all-out assault on Knut. Thanks for listening to Dictators. Next week, we'll explore Knut's tumultuous relationship with his Scandinavian allies, the threats to his throne, and how he forged the mighty North Sea Empire. For more information on Knut, amongst the many sources we used, we found Knut the Great by Timothy Bolton to be extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Dictators is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound designed by Juan Borda, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Katovich. This episode of Dictators was written by Devin Hughes, with writing assistance by Tony Goodman and Andrew Messer. Fact-checking by Adriana Romero, and research by Bradley Klein. Dictators stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rossner. Werewolves, Witches, and Arthur Conan Doyle? 
oh my, sounds like fascinating topics to discuss on our new show, Rituals, Christine. You know what, Em? It sure does. Every Monday on Rituals, join us as we explore the evolution of spiritualism and the occult through stories, practices, and the impact on modern culture. If you've heard our podcast and that's why we drink, this is the perfect pairing for you. And if you haven't, go give us a try. Follow our Spotify original from Parcast, Rituals. Listen free only on Spotify. Spotify.